Hey, how's it going? Welcome to the James McDonald Podcast, where we say love to live to love. That's our focus, that's our passion, and we invite you to let God's Word have that impact in your life right now. Here's Pastor James. So, we are in this series called Worthy, where we are uh, studying this term. Uh, if we say something's worth it, something's worth it, we say that what we uh, paid when put off against what it weighed or what it cost, we say it was worth it, worth it. That's the same word from which we get our word worthy. And when the Bible says again and again of Jesus Christ that he is worthy, what it's saying is no matter how much you put on this side of the scale, you can't put too much praise and worship on this side because he is, say it, he's worthy of that. It's never too much. And so we're going through uh, what theologians would call uh, the th Christological passages in the Bible, the passages that tell us the most about Jesus Christ and who He is. And uh, today our study is in uh, Colossians chapter 1. So the last uh, year uh, that Kathy and I were in the church that we gave the majority of our life to, I started preaching on love, and I said, I'm going to preach on love till I can't think of anything else to preach on. And, and uh, I preached on that as long as we were there. And uh, I kind of feel the same way with this uh, subject of Christology or worthy because there are just so many incredible passages. Now, uh, this passage is what we would call uh, pregnant with meaning. It is full to the limit with meaning. Let me just read the short verses to you. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, speaking of Jesus Christ, having said already in verse... <clears throat> 13, that he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us, God the Father did, to the kingdom of his beloved Son, speaking of Jesus, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Going on to describe him more, do you see it there, Colossians 1.15? Speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Say amen. amen. Let me begin with this quote uh, here. Um, you will, I will, we will uh, never experience the fullness of joy that we were created to know until Jesus Christ is first in every area of our lives. Amen. Okay? Uh, birds fly. Fish swim, pigs oink, human beings are made by their creator to relate to their creator. This can't be said of anything else that God made. Uh, you're not the star of the play, God is, but you have a major role in it, your soul intersecting with and Fellowshipping with the God who made you is the highest human experience that there is. Sadly, so much religion has really almost nothing to do with that and is about so many other things that end up being so destructive. But um, again, 
I will, you will, we will never experience the fullness of joy we were created to know until Jesus Christ is first in every area of our lives. That's the application point of the truth. How's it going, Joe? That's the application point of the passage that we just read. Now, I'm going to go through these pretty quick because there's 10 of them. Think you can sit here for 10, Mike? They're going to come quick, though. All right? I want you to look at the text, all of you, and whether you're new to Bible teaching, as uh, a good number of you are, or whether there's something you've been doing for a long time, I want to, you to satisfy yourself in this regard. Is he preaching things he wants to say, or is he preaching what God's Word says? That's why I always have you to ask, but don't assume nothing. That's why I want you to have your Bible open. That's why you, I want you to look and see. I'm going to expound upon the text. Under the heading of worthy, in this passage, I'm going to show you 10 things that the Bible passage says, Colossians chapter 1, about Jesus Christ. If you're ready to jump, say jump. jump. Here it is, number 10. We'll count them down. All right? Number 10, he shows us the Father. Jesus Christ shows us God the Father. Notice that's what it means when it says, Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. That word image is the word from which we get our English word icon. It's the idea of a statue, but it's more than physical appearance, which we would all agree could be coincidental. Kathy and I have had a game that we've played for years when we're traveling through airports. We have a contest where we keep score of, hey, that kind of looks like Hey, that kind of looks like, and if the other person sees it and agrees, you get one point. We're all familiar with a coincidental similarity, right? That's not what this is saying at all. Nothing like that. It's saying, in fact, that Jesus Christ is God the Father. He is the image of the invisible God, the exact replica or, replicant or, rep or representation. Last week we studied Hebrews 1.8. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, Hebrews 1.3. In John 14.9, Jesus said this incredible thing. Did you know that Jesus Christ said this? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Amen. You want to see the Father? You're looking at him. Jesus Christ is the only God you will ever see. In John chapter 1, verse 18, he says, No one has seen the Father at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, He has declared Him. And so, it's an incredible thing that Jesus Christ shows us God the Father. Sometimes you wonder, is God really forgiving? Well, is Jesus Christ forgiving? We doubt, is God really loving and compassionate? Well, what life did Jesus Christ live before us? Sometimes we can become confused. Is God really capable of righteous anger and judgment? Well, look at the life of Christ. We long to know, is God sensitive to my needs? Does he care about my specific situation? Well, how did Jesus handle the individuals that he met as he walked this earth? Jesus Christ, he's worthy. He shows us the Father. Here's number nine. He is unique. That's where the... Just, I'm just going through this a phrase at a time. He's the image of the invisible God. The next phrase, do you see it there? He is the firstborn of all creation. Now, there's 
as I mentioned last time, quite a bit of controversy surrounding this idea of being firstborn. Uh, so much so that in the early church, did you know this? Did you know that we have the books of the councils of the early church? There was no printing press until the 1500s. But there were written documents, and because of the dominance of Christianity worldwide through the centuries, some of the very first books that were made were the books of the written notes of the meetings of the early church. And here's one of them right here. Just a, I don't have the book. I have a photocopy of the page. And um, at one of the earliest councils, people were taking this phrase firstborn to mean that Jesus was the first offspring of God, so to speak. And this is what the church fathers said. We believe in one God, the Father of all, sovereign maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, only begotten, that is. God of God, light of light, truly God, of true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, things in heaven and on earth. And quoting right from the passage we're studying who for us men and for our salvation came down and was made flesh and became man and suffered and rose on the third day. And those that say there was when he was not, and of those who say, this is a big slam coming, y'all. All right, this is from the early church fathers. And of those who say before he was begotten, he was not. And of those who say that he came into being from what is not, or those that allege that the Son of God is somehow not is somehow another substance or essence or created or changeable or alterable these the holy christian church anathematizes it was a strong statement they pronounced a curse on anyone who suggests that jesus is less than god so there's no tapestries here I'm not wearing a big hat and a cape. You don't have to kiss my ring. But that's high church that just happened right there. That's regard for the church fathers through the centuries. We're not here in this little place in a corner of Elgin teaching some abstract doctrine that leads to cult following. You are in the center of the center stream of what Bible-believing Christians have thought and believed through the centuries, okay? In fact, let me go on to say, he shows us the Father. He is unique in much of the ancient world. As I said last time, the physical firstborn special status, it meant special privilege, unique in position among many children. And when it refers to Jesus here as the end of verse 15 of Colossians 1, the firstborn of all creation, all right? It's just really understand that, good that you understand, that doesn't mean that he was born, and it doesn't mean that he was made. Over the centuries, the term firstborn just came to be understood as unique in rank and privilege. He was unique in rank and privilege, so much so that in Exodus 4, Jeremiah 3, Israel is called the firstborn, but they were not the first nation. And in Psalm 89, 27, um, the Messiah is called the firstborn, but he was eternal God. And many other examples could be given. David is referred to as my firstborn son, God says. 
and it just was a term of unique in rank and privilege. That's all that it means. And um, like I said, that was all settled by the Council of Nicaea, it was called. Now, here's the number eight. He shows us the Father. He is unique. And then this. He is creator. And I've been saying this for three weeks now. And I remember when I was a young man, it kind of blew my mind, honestly, the first time I understood that Jesus Christ is the creator of the universe. This is what the scriptures actually teach. So let's look a little bit further here in Colossians, the next phrase, beginning in verse 16, where it says, For by him all things were created. Do you see that? By, all, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Okay, that settles that. Visible and invisible. That's all things. Whether not just physical things, thrones, it's not talking about the chair there, it's talking about positions of authority, dominions, that's rulerships over regions, rulers or authorities would be more local, all things were created, interesting, so think about the election this week, that God's in control of all that, and the powers that be are established by God for the punishment of wrongdoers, and sometimes God gives us the leaders that we deserve not the leaders that we want. It's just awesome to think that God is in control of all of it. We can cast our votes and wag our finger at the one we think is getting it wrong. And yet God is eternally marching out his purposes regardless, isn't he? And this Jesus Christ is the firstborn of all creation, verse 16, for by him all things were created. And I gave you a couple little statistics last time, like the size of the universe is mind-boggling. 1.3 million planet Earths can fit inside the sun. The sun is, the, is a very small star in our galaxy. Betelgeuse, I mentioned before, is the largest star in our galaxy. Its radius is 100 million miles. Larger than the Earth's orbit around the sun is how big this star is. Can you imagine, and that's just in our galaxy, and now um, in our galaxy, hundreds of billions of stars and galaxies themselves, which is made up of solar systems, galaxies are now numbered in the billions. And um, I personally, and I'm not really at this point even trying to change your mind, but I personally do not believe in evolution. I don't believe in so-called theistic evolution where kind of God got the ball rolling and then nature took its course. I believe that the second person of the Trinity stood at some unknowable point in eternity past and as the scripture says, he spoke and the worlds were formed. It's easier for me to believe in something that's outside of my understanding than it is for me to accept an uncaused cause an undesigned design, I just don't believe it. I believe that the modern evolutionary system is really less about science and more about suppressing the existence of God to whom we must all give an account. And so Jesus Christ looked over an ageless, spaceless chasm of nothing and said, let there be light. And there was light. I believe that with all of my heart. I have good reason to believe it. Um, if you want to dig more deeply into the solid scientific evidence for special um, creation, it's available and it's very persuasive. 
Back to the main subject of worthy and Jesus Christ first in everything. He shows us the Father. He's unique. He is the creator. <clears throat> I love this. He is supreme. Supreme rules uh, refers to those ranks of various uh, um, angels um, even are in this list here in Colossians chapter 1. Whether principalities or powers, one translation says. And uh, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions. Probably Bible commentators believe that's not a reference to earthly thrones, uh, but to uh, spiritual realms that we cannot see, regions and territories of angelic and demonic beings which are warring for uh, God's outcome or Satan's desire to tear it all down. That uh, war is going on all the time. Ephesians chapter 1 says that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against angels and principalities and powers and spiritual forces in heavenly places. I have to say I've experienced that. And Jesus Christ is supreme over all of it. I love that phrase there in the verse where it says, all things were created through him and all things were created for him. That's really important. Jot that down as the next one, number six. He is our purpose. All things were created through him and for him. God is not some exalted human being at the top of a ladder of existence. Not at all. He's not even on the ladder. He made the ladder. You hear somebody say, you know, God's not an old man, an old codger in a white coat. Or they'll say, man, if I ever meet God, I'm going to tell him a thing or two. Really? Do you even know what you're talking about? All right. The Bible says that God is ineffable glory and that he dwells in unapproachable light. That no one can see God and live. That it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Yet all of us will fall into those hands. And life is your opportunity to decide if you will take the only refuge found, which is in this Jesus Christ who I am preaching to you. Some people have a hard time with Jesus Christ creating things and creating them for himself. Again, that's just our, you know, who does he think he is and, and what's it all about his glory for? That reveals that you have him in some status as being another human being. The question isn't, why does he get all the glory? The question is, why does he care at all about the people that he made? Why has he allowed himself to even be affected by the things that we say and do, the right and the wrong that we choose? Several years ago, Forbes magazine did a Special article, they invited uh, scholars from around the world to contribute to their 75th anniversary issue. The key question they gave to these scholars was this, why are we so unhappy? <clears throat> Supposedly the greatest minds in the, in the world, an incredible group of essays were written, but they came to this conclusion, we are a troubled civilization because we have lost our moral and spiritual center, end quote. That people are floating like so many comets in space and they're not tied into the core, to the creator. Wonderful truths about him. He shows us the father. He's unique. He's the creator. He is supreme. He is our purpose. Um, 
one more thing about the Creator because I won't have a chance to come back to this. We talked a lot about the macro universe, but I want to talk for a couple of minutes about the micro universe, you know, like down, 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 down into the sub particles. Um, interesting. Consider the dilemma of, nuclear, of the nuclear physicist when he looks in utter amazement at the pattern he has now drawn of the oxygen nucleus. For here are eight positively charged protons closely associated together within the confines of this tiny nucleus, and with them are eight neutrons, uh, a total of 16 particles, eight positively charged, eight with no charge. Earlier physicists had discovered that like charges of electricity repel each other, and unlike charges attract each other. In fact, the entire history of electrical phenomenon known as Coulomb's Law backs this up. What's wrong, you ask? What is holding the nucleus together? Why doesn't it fly apart? And therefore, why do not all atoms fly apart? Uh, Lee Chestnut, uh, in his book, uh, goes on to describe the experiments performed over a century ago, leading to the establishment of Coulomb's Law. They built powerful atom smashers that were used to fire protons into the nuclei of atoms. Those experiments gave scientists an understanding of the incredible powerful force that held protons together within the nucleus. Scientists have dubbed, excuse me, excuse me. I wish that came at a dramatic point when I was fired up. I've taken this water off here every week. I can't have a tippy bottle there, sorry. I think I'm just pushing it a bit. But let me, I don't want you to miss this, forgive me. Um, Scientists have dubbed this the strong nuclear force, but have no explanation for why it exists. In fact, the physicist George Garnow, one of the founders of the Big Bang Theory of the origin of the universe, wrote this. The fact that we live in a world in which practically every object is a potential nuclear explosion without being blown to bits is something I simply cannot explain. You grasp what this implies? Carl Darrow, a physicist at the Bell Laboratories, agrees and says... It implies that all the massive nuclei have no right to be alive at all. Indeed, they should never have been created, and if created, they should have blown up instantly, yet here they all are. Some inflexible inhibition is holding them relentlessly together. The Bible teaches in 2 Peter chapter 3 that one day in the future, God will dissolve that strong nuclear force. Peter describes the day when the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed and melt with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. With the strong nuclear force no longer held captive, Coulomb's law will take effect and the nuclei of every atom will fly apart. The universe will literally explode. Until that time, we can be thankful that Christ does, as the scripture teach, uphold all things by the word of his power. So there it is, not just created the universe, but is actually sustaining the universe and that's what it says in verse 17 of jesus he is before all things and in him all things hold together so um, let me run down my list again he shows us the father he is unique he is the creator he is supreme he is our purpose <coughs> next one was he is eternal he is eternal, and as I just taught, he is the sustainer. 
So do we have all those together kind of in a list? If we don't, it's okay. He is eternal. Um, let me just say a little bit, a little bit more about that when it says that he is before all things. It's hard to think of uh, what is an uncaused cause. But as I said, um, logic, many people believe that logic and rational thinking pushes you away from faith and that the really smart people are the ones that are digging deeply. But that actually is not the case at all. And I'm going to give you an illustration of that, not from the idea of a caused cause, but this is what's called, if you've ever heard this term, a trilemma. A trilemma is a um, series of three thoughts that when considered logically force a particular conclusion. Now I've shown you many passages, some tonight, where we begin to learn how many times you heard people say, well, Jesus, you know, he was just a good man. He was just a moral teacher. He was just a... But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches, as I've been showing you, that Jesus claimed to be God. He said, you want to see the Father? You're looking at him. I and the Father are one, all right? Here we see him described as the creator and sustainer of the universe, all right? That's what the Bible actually says about Jesus Christ. And if you're brought up in a liberal church and didn't even know that you're preacher didn't believe anything the Bible actually says. That's what it actually says. So if that's true, the idea that Jesus is just a moral teacher, you know, somebody could give some thought true, kind of like a first round Tony Robbins type guy. Okay. The problem with that is, is that, and here's the trilemma right here. He said he was God. He said he was God. So if he said he was God, and he's not God, what is he? What is he? Say it, Wally. Liar. He's a liar. If he, if he said he was God, and he knew he wasn't, he's a liar, he's a hypocrite, he's nothing. He claimed to be God, and he told people he was God, and when people asked him, he said, you've said it. So, this is an argument that was popularized by C.S. Lewis, and then later by um, Josh McDowell, but it actually goes back to Watchman Nee and a Scottish theologian in the 17th century, so maybe we don't actually know where this argument came from. But that's the first of the trilemma. He claimed to be God, so if he isn't, if, he's, if, he, if, if he isn't God, he's a liar, but there's another possibility. Maybe he thought he was God. Did you ever meet that guy? Guy, they thought he was God. Anybody ever had a conversation with somebody who was telling you they were God? Okay, so I think we all pretty much agree that that guy is what? That guy's a lunatic. All right. If he says he's God, I'm God. Oh, really? Are you? Are you? Well, somebody get the coat with the long sleeves. Right. And and because um, you can't be in your right mind and claim to be God. If you're God, you know you can do some big tricks for us immediately. All right. So if he claims to be God and he knows he's not, he's a liar. If he claims to be God, but he doesn't know that he's not, he's a lunatic. And in terms of just rational thinking, he's either one of those two things or he actually is who he said he is. So if you remember nothing else that I said, remember that 
Faith in God is not the people who are checking their minds at the door, and the smart guys are the guys who are over in the biology class. Just go and Google yourself and look at some creation evolution debates on YouTube. And just watch them and see what you think is persuasive. There's certainly nothing for us to be running away from. <clears throat> I can assure you of that. So that was just a little more on he is eternal and he is the sustainer. Now there's three. And we're going to have some good conversation and refreshment together. Number three, interestingly, he's the head of the church, reading from verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. Now, I've been part of churches that Jesus Christ was the head of, and I've been part of churches that Jesus Christ wasn't the head of. But that's not talking about either one of those. This is not talking about the church on the corner, the church with the steeple, open it up and see all the people. It's not talking about that. It's talking about the church, the group of sincere, by faith, Christ followers around the world. He's the head of the church. The head is the focal point of human activity. I think we all understand that hearing and seeing and smelling and tasting and thinking and choosing and acting and feeling are all happening here above the shoulders. Without a head, a body is just a, the word corpse comes to mind. And without Christ, the church is a morgue. A man from New York City uh, who mentored me uh, many years ago said that most churches are either Cemeteries are insane asylums. Cemeteries is where the head is dead. And insane asylums is where the head is somehow disconnected from life and rational thought. I'm less convinced than I've ever been about what is the popular, proper formulation of the church. By government standards, this is a church. They're not very interested in a lot of the things that the church does other than the things that the Bible says the church does. I'm very, very interested in those things. And this is the main thing that the church says, that the Bible says, forgive me. And this is the main thing that the Bible says the church does. Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. I was blessed to pastor one of the largest churches in America, top 10 out of 400,000. And I have more joy being here in this room and learning how to love these people and caring for the men that God brings into this house and trying in sincere ways to express what God has given to us Amen. in his son, Jesus. And if that's appealing to you at all, I can tell you that you're here in the right place. And for the guys that are living in the house, We've told you this before, I'll tell you again, it's not our intent that our, our relationship will end with your successful sobriety. It's our belief that that's the beginning of it and that it's going to go on long beyond that and that this will always be a place of home and family and love and support for you. I believe that. Chuck believes that. Bobby, who went away for a sobriety retreat this weekend, that's very personal to him. Pray for him if you get a chance. We all believe this. 
very, very strongly. So let me say it out loud. We don't require faith for the people that come to our house. We don't require faith for the people that come to our property. We just want people to come the way they are. And we want them to be loved by us because we are loved by God. And, and, and Jesus said, as I said to his disciples, in, in uh, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loves us and gave his son as payment for our sin. By this all will know, John 13, that you're my disciples if you have love for each other. The most frequent experience we should have when we meet a person who says they love Christ is we should feel like they're very loving. They're not about themselves. And yet we all battle ourselves, don't we? Someone say amen to that. Amen. Come on, Wally, I saw you battling yourself. I'm just teasing you. We've all experienced it, and I know that you agree with that. These two things, and I'm done. He is the victor over death. I read that portion already where it says, He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That's, for, again, firstborn meaning unique in rank and privilege. Jesus was the first person before Jesus from Adam to the last person to die in Jerusalem before the first Good Friday. All of them went into the ground. None of them came out. Jesus Christ is the first person to rise from the dead. And because he has risen, those of us who know Christ will never die. Okay, okay because you're begging me. I'll show that to you in the Bible. It's right over here in 1 Corinthians 15, just a couple of pages to the left, like really like 10 or 11 pages to the left where he says this incredible thing. You've heard this read at a lot of funerals, by the way. I see it on movies all the time. Um, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep 1 Corinthians 15, 51. But we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death! Where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And so he is the victor. He is the one who won the victory and brings victory to all who believe in him. Do you understand that? If you're in Christ, you'll never die. A very personal story to me is my mother, I'm not sure that I'm entirely over it yet, but my mother died very painfully of ALS in 2010. And we were there at her bedside within a few days. She went quickly, she found out and lost her feeling in her extremities and it creeps into the center of the body, into the core, and then she couldn't uh, swallow and then ultimately um, she couldn't breathe and she was gone and she suffered a lot. I remember the last time I saw her, I knew it was going to be the last time that I would see her, and she was laying in a bed, if you can picture it kind of right here, 
And all around the room, people had come to visit her, hundreds and hundreds of people. She had a very, very impactful life. She wasn't a pastor. She didn't lead a church, but she poured into a ton of people. And people would come and visit her, and they'd write scriptures on the walls. And I wanted to write a scripture on the wall. Everyone else wrote her son hadn't even been there to write a scripture on the wall. This had only been going on for a few weeks since we were last there. And so I saw right up at the top, I saw a line where I guess nobody was tall enough. Even I had to get a chair, and I reached up to the top of the wall. The paint was just a little darker than this. And I wrote from John chapter 11, where Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Then he said, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Because that's what it comes down to. That everyone who believes in me, I am the resurrection and the life. I'll quote it again. John chapter 11. Everyone who believes in me will never die. In fact, everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? So I wrote this on the wall. In the top of my mom's saying, I can see myself getting in the corner. And I put in big block letters, do you believe this? And I underlined it. And I went over, took my mom's hand, and I pointed to it. And she couldn't move. I said, Mom, if you believe this, blink your eyes. And she was. And I took my Sharpie and I went and put an exclamation point at the end. She believed it. And listen, she didn't die. Dying is what people who are staying are saying about people in Christ who are going. Well, I guess he died. It looks the same way as my Uncle Phil. Yeah, until one nanosecond after those eyes are closed, and that's where there's a broad road that leads to destruction. Many people are going that way, and there's a narrow road that leads to eternal life, and only a few people are finding it. And so when Jesus Christ is proclaimed as the victor over death, I'll say it again. I'm the resurrection and the life. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And finally, he is the Father's delight. Notice it says there, verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus submitted to the Father. He prayed at, in the garden, not your will be done, but mine be done. Uh, as he faced the cross, Jesus was in submission to the Father. And so you might start thinking to yourself, well, God the Father is kind of the end of the line here, right? He's sort of the big tuna and then everything else is kind of, well, there's only one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit dwelling together in one person. But again, the Father, and only a Father can understand this. Fathers understand this about sons. The greatest joy is not in your own being out there, but in your son being out there. And so if you're ever worried that God the Father's not getting top billing, Colossians 1.19, for in him, Jesus, 
For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Pleased. God the Father is pleased that He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He sent His Son to this world. He lived a perfect life. He died to pay the penalty for our sins. He rose from the dead to prove that He's God. And everyone who believes that has the gift of eternal life. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for these um, teachable people. Thank You for these attentive hearts. Thank You for this room and the increasing sense that Your Word is honored here. And we meet with You here because we love You. Let us be... Um, a group of people who are passionate about you and how worthy you really are and bless us with the refreshments we're about to receive as we seek to be an encouragement to one another. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. 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 So I hope that you've been really encouraged today through this clear teaching from God's Word. I just want to thank you from the whole team for listening to the James McDonald podcast, where the learning is for loving, loving God, and for loving others more and more until we see Him face to face. Thank you for standing with us. Your prayerful support is our lifeline to continue this gospel partnership, and it makes podcasts like these possible. If you're not part of a vibrant, life-giving gospel church, check out this new alternative. It's called the Home Church Network. You can get it at homechurchnetwork.global. All the ministry information, Bible teaching, and and resources are there, and also at jamesmcdonaldministries.org. Hey, thank you again for listening.